0: Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Just had one of those moments. uh, Thanks for whoever that is. Thank you. Had one of those moments where you feel really old. I just turned around to turn this mic pack on and like had a total side cramp just from that (laughs) tiny little motion. So let me just stretch it out a little bit here. Welcome to Crossroads. If you guys are new, um, we're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Meals with Jesus. And really the impetus for That particular sermon series is, uh, in the Gospels, we see that it says the Son of Man, Jesus came doing three different things. He came to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for ransom. And he came eating and drinking. And I think so often as Christians, we're very familiar with the first two. Uh, We are very good at self-denial, or we try to be, and dying to self, rightfully so, and fasting But we've kind of ignored this third one, that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. In fact, was even accused of being a a, uh, glutton and a drunkard. He wasn't. When when God laid out the feast days for Israel, there were dozens and dozens of feasts and only one day of fasting. And so we've been looking at this and saying, what does it look like for us to be people who gather for meals? What does it look like for us to examine all the places in Scripture where Jesus gives a meal? And so we're going to look at another one today, but I will say today's passage is a little different. This isn't a a typical celebratory feast, but I think it still has something really important for us today. I think it still shows that Jesus doesn't just come to us when we're on the mountaintop and everything is going right, but Jesus is also the God of a meal when things are going really, really poorly as well. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Since we're just kind of like, we haven't been in Kings, we're just kind of airdropping in the middle of this book, let me give a little bit of context for us. Israel is headlong in idolatry. Idolatry just means um, worshiping anything other than the true and living God. And so Israel has turned their back on God and really they have turned their gaze towards a false god named Baal. And Baal is this tough god from the north. He lives on top of Mount Zaphron. He is the thunder god. Right? This is the, the rider of the clouds. Everything about this guy just kind of screams toughness, thunder, and lightning. He was the weather god. But he's finding himself neutered a little bit lately because God has come in and said, okay, Israel, you want to worship this so-called weather god. How about if I stop the rain for three and a half years? And not a single drop of rain has fallen during this time because Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen, have turned Israel towards this false god. And it all culminates when Elijah shows up on the scene and he challenges 450 prophets of Baal to this showdown. I know I'm giving you guys a lot of backstory here, but this is going to be really important as we dive into our particular text. He challenges 450. That would be kind of like maybe this half of the room, all professional prophets of Baal. And then you've got on this side of the room, just Elijah sitting by himself. And he says, meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going to do this showdown, and you guys prepare a bull, 450 of you, prepare this offering for Baal. I'm going to prepare a bull for the Lord, but don't light any fire on it. Don't put a single spark to it. Whatever God is God will be the God who can send fire down from heaven. And so the 450 are working, and they're a little faster than Elijah because there's 450 of them. And so they have their bull all ready to go, and you kind of hear this little murmur beginning to go, and it's It's the sound of these 450 prophets all praying in unison. And then it grows louder and louder as they begin to shout and they begin to dance and they begin to do everything they can to get Baal to listen. And everyone hears it, but apparently not Baal because there's just silence. The bull is still just sitting there. And I think I picture Elijah just on this side watching this whole little spectacle with a little smirk on his face. And eventually he can't even take it. And he starts dancing and he starts shouting. But it's not to God, it's actually mocking all of the 450 prophets. He's shouting insults at them. Maybe yell a little louder. Certainly Baal can hear you. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. He's challenging them. He's mocking them right as they're hurting and they're not getting a response. And so they get desperate and they begin to cut themselves and blood is flowing on the ground. And in the ancient world, that's what you had to do. If you wanted to get the gods to direct their gaze on you, you had to be really loud. You had to be intense and in desperation. You even had to cut yourself and do extreme measures to get the gods to pay attention. But there's still silence. No fire. No offering being consumed. And so finally, it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah steps up, and he's not done taunting and tormenting, and so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get 12 jars of water, and I want you to pour it all over the top of this offering. In fact, I want you to fill it, drench it so much that the trough is full of water that's all the way around the altar. And so as he does this, Elijah then just simply steps up, utters a simple prayer. There's no shouting There's no dancing. There's no cutting himself. He doesn't have to do that for God to listen. And boom. It's almost like a bomb goes off at the top of his offering. The whole thing is just eviscerated. And I wonder, did people have to like cover their faces? Did people have to regrow their eyebrows? Because this fire was so hot. It burned up the bull. It burned up all the water in the trough. It even burned up the stones and the soil that was around it. Elijah's just won the biggest victory of his life. The people around him are beginning to chant that God is Yahweh. Everyone's chanting. And Elijah, he grabs the prophets and he says, Don't let any one of the 450 get away. And he puts all these false prophets to death. And then he goes and he tells the king, Ahab, Ahab, I have good news for you. Start feasting because it's going to rain. God's going to bring the rain that you've been longing for so much. Throw a little party. And so Ahab goes off and he starts eating and Elijah just kind of sneaks off and he starts praying. And pretty soon a cloud the size of a man's fist shows up. And Elijah in his excitement tells Ahab, get out of here, go to the capital. And he hops in his chariot and Elijah runs ahead of the chariot. I think everything that Elijah's ever wanted just took place right here. Everything he's ever longed for. He beat the 450 prophets. They're gone. God has just proven that he's God. Rain has fallen for the people that Elijah loves so much. Everything is going on. Elijah is on cloud nine. But here's what I want to ask you guys. The mood is about to shift. In two verses, we're going to see this entire passage look very, very, very different. And I want to ask you, as we're reading this passage, what could have changed in Elijah's heart? to make him respond like this? Why the big shift? Why the sudden change in his demeanor? So stand with me if you're willing and able. We like to stand for the reading of God's word here. 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. That's the king and the queen and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and said, You're a dead man. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time I don't make your life like one of them, Elijah. Elijah was afraid. He was terrified. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down and fell asleep. All at once, the angel touched him and said, "'Get up, eat.' He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, "'Get up, Elijah, eat, for the journey is too much for you.' So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave to spend the night." And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, though. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for he is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. We're going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I told you guys this was a big shift. Can I get a map maybe to help us out just a little bit? Okay, we started our story up there in the top left. You'll see Mount Carmel, right? We didn't read it, but in chapter 18, verse 46, it says this, The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I want you to see Jezreel on there. You can see the little distance thing in the bottom. That is almost 20 miles. And here is Elijah, cloak tucked into his belt, booking it faster than any chariot can keep up with. Marathoning so fast that Ahab is just left in the dust. In fact, I think I have a picture through the miracle of modern technology of what Elijah may have looked like in that moment. (laughs) For those of you unfortunate enough to have been born after 1995, this is Forrest Gump. Maybe Tom Hanks, best character that he ever played. Oh, shoot. Tom Hanks is an actor, if you guys are... (laughs) All right, let's, just, let's move on. Okay, it's not just the distance. If you put that map back up there, it's not just the distance that's shocking. It's not just the speed that Elijah's traveling at. It's also where he goes. Jezreel is ground zero in Israel at that time. It's the epicenter of everything that's going on. It's the, it's the residence of Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen. He is running right into the lion's den. But I don't think he's doing it shy. I don't think he's doing it sheepishly. In fact, I think Elijah's running in here like just strutting into town, like a conquering hero. In fact, I'm convinced at this point that as Elijah just kind of like strutted into town, he was listening for the sounds of revival. He was convinced he'd hear the sounds of people repenting, the sound of smashing as people were tearing up their idols. The sound of cheering, the sound of people declaring that Yahweh is the Lord and Elijah is His servant. I don't think he's worried about Jezebel the queen one bit because I think he thinks either she's repented or she'll be deposed as king er, as queen. But when he steps into Jezreel, I think what Elijah hears is very different. I think what he hears is the sound of business going on, the sound of people shopping, the sound of people playing, the sound of. Business as usual, Mount Carmel has done nothing to change the hearts of the Israelites. No revival has taken place. I think this is one of the lowest points in Elijah's life. But before we talk about how much this impacted Elijah, I want us to remember Elijah is no weakling here. This is the fearless prophet Who for years has been persecuted and chased down and he's refused to back down. He's the zealous prophet they called the troubler of Israel. He was willing to be so poor that he had to be fed by ravens and through charity. He challenged 450 prophets to a life or death game. He's no weakling. In fact, I would say that he represents the best of most of us combined in terms of courage. Let's keep that in mind as we look at verse 1 again. Verse 1, Ahab tells Jezebel everything. This is the king talking to the queen. This is husband talking to wife. I really wonder how that conversation went. (coughs) Ahab, Ahab, I see rain. Like, Baal must have won, right? Yeah, Uh, about that. he, He didn't. He didn't win. And it gets even worse, Jezebel, because those 450 prophets that chapter 18 tells us ate at your table and were friends and people that you loved... Yeah, they're all dead. Elijah killed them all. And I can just imagine Jezebel's response. You're the king. How could you let this happen? I can see I have to do it all myself. You know what? Give me a messenger right now. Give me a messenger in verse two. You tell Elijah he's a dead man. You killed my prophets. By this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you and make you just like one of them. And so Elijah receives this messenger from an angry Jezebel, and he just says, game on. Let's do it. He doesn't say that at all. Elijah doesn't even stick around long enough to send a message back. He doesn't even wait to see what Jezebel's cooking up. He just makes like an airplane and takes off. He just makes like a baseball player and runs home. I've got a million of these. You guys want a spiritual one? He just makes like the Red Sea and splits. <laughs> just trying to keep you guys entertained. But he does. He really, really takes off. And we know how he can run. We've got the other map, if you don't mind. Look for Beersheba on there. And while you're doing it, let me just say this. Elijah doesn't stand up to her. He doesn't stick around. All his courage just melts away. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. A minute ago, he was running in triumph in front of chariots, and now he's running with his tail between his legs. Don't let anyone kid you. The Bible doesn't make a hero out of anyone except Christ. And that should be really, really reassuring for us. It should take a lot of pressure off for us. You don't have to be perfect. There's only one who's perfect. And praise the Lord, it's not you, it's not me. We get to be imperfect. We get to fail sometimes because he never did. And Elijah just takes off running and he runs to Beersheba, verse 4 says, or verse 3, in Judah. That's a hundred miles. That's how far He runs before he stops. How scared would you have to be to run a hundred miles before you even stop? If you're a non-runner like me, how far, how scared would you have to be to run one mile (laughs) before you stop? But keep reading. He left his servant there. In the ancient world, this doesn't mean he's going on a couple day vacation. This is like he just liquidated the factory, closed up the doors, business is done, Elijah just quit. God, I will no longer be your prophet. I'll no longer be your messenger. Find somebody else. I'm done. Verse 4. While he himself went a day's journey journey further, as if a hundred miles wasn't enough, he goes one more day into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. That's just basically like this big desert plant that offers shade. Sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. I'm done. Take my life I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and he fell asleep. Elijah runs. Elijah quits. Elijah wants to die. Elijah just gives up and falls asleep. All of Elijah's confidence has just evaporated in this desert heat. Why? He just took on 450 prophets. Jezebel issuing threats is nothing new to him. I want to answer that question, but before I do, I want to be sensitive to something. I know many of us can relate to what Elijah's feeling right now. I know many of us have felt what it feels like to be tired, to be fearful, to be hopeless, and just in despair. Some of us might be in that spot right now, just kind of teetering on that spot of losing all hope. And I want to say, I hope that this passage is giving us some hope and some comfort. Comfort that we're not alone. Comfort that despair and fear are not conditions of the spiritually immature. It's not a sign that you're some kind of spiritual invalid or you lack maturity. uh, Maturity. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in all of Scripture. And we see him buckling under the weight of all of these things. So if that's you today, if you find yourself in a spot where you've just, you're exhausted, you're heaped in discouragement, you're losing your very will to go on, I want you to take comfort first that you're not alone. I want you to take comfort in the words that God gives and the actions that God gives that we're going to look at in a minute. But I also want to say, maybe you want to consider reaching out for help. It's really hard to see hope when you're huddled up underneath the broom bush. You need others in your life. You're at a church that longs to walk shoulder to shoulder with you, that longs to be in your court fighting for you, advocating for you, bearing burdens with you. Reach out. Email me, email anyone on staff. We'd love to walk with you if you find yourself in this spot. It's one of the beautiful things about Christian community. I want to take a minute and I want to try to press into what led Elijah to this point. But I also want to say I don't want to be reductionistic. I don't think everyone gets to this point for the exact same issues and same things. We are complex beings. We are biological, emotional, spiritual. There's a lot of factors that can be here. But I've been asking myself all week, why is Elijah specifically here? And the word that just keeps coming back to me, the thing that I keep seeing in the text, is idolatry. So again, let me just say, despair creeps up for a variety of reasons. And while not all despair is because of idolatry, all idolatry ends in despair. Let me say that again. While not all despair comes because of idolatry, all idolatry ends in despair. And for Elijah, there's hints of his idolatry all over our passage today. Look at verse 4. I'm no better than my ancestors, Lord. Just take my life I'm a failure, God. I couldn't do it. I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm just like every other prophet that came before me. I'm no better. Elijah's identity is on his performance, and he failed. And as a result, he feels utterly insignificant, utterly unneeded. There's even hints that in that great victory at Mount Carmel, that Elijah's steeped into my idolatry there. Elijah's dancing around, he's mocking, he's throwing shade all over the place, he's relishing the moment, he's peacocking. There's little clues, though, that he's made this all about him and that's why he's enjoying it so much. In fact, I'm not so sure that God ever told him to do this showdown at all. If you look at the start of the chapter, God says, go present yourself to Ahab, I'm going to make it rain. And when Elijah sees Ahab, Ahab insults him and he says, that's it, we're doing this. Get the show down, you get your prophets, I'm going, we're going to make this happen. And when Elijah prays that God's going to send fire down on that altar for all of Israel to see, he prays in verse 36 of chapter 18, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And he should have stopped there. It would have been a beautiful prayer. But he doesn't even stop, he doesn't put even a period in the sentence, he just keeps going and that everyone will know that I'm your servant and I've done these things, and he's meaning over the last several years at your command. Elijah's making this about him, even just a little bit. And if that isn't enough, what do the Israelites chant in verse 39? Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. What does the name Elijah mean? My God is Yahweh. Yahweh there's a decent chance that they're there chanting, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. A small part of me wonders. I don't want to be cynical in this, but I know some of human nature from my own heart. If Elijah's doing this whole show and he's seeking validation for who he is, God, prove to them that I'm with you. Prove to them that I'm your special prophet. Prove to them that I'm the real deal. But before we go too hard on Elijah, let me just say, how often do we do this too? How often do we sometimes seek the miracle, seek a special word from God, a special sign from God, but we know that there's a big part of us that's doing it because we want validation. God, I want to know that you see me, that I'm special, that I'm chosen, that I'm noticed, that I'm heard. Sometimes, behind even the most beautiful things, there's some real ugliness underneath. and We start to sound a lot like Elijah. God, bring revival, but bring it through me in kind of a flashy way where everyone knows that I'm a part of it. And like all idolatry, it leads you to the mountaintop like Elijah feels. He's on cloud nine when it's performing, but when it stops performing, that idol leaves you in utter despair and hopelessness. What in your life, if you failed to have it or it stopped performing, would lead you to no longer want to live, would make it like the color just drained out of this world. If your significant other cheated, if your family fell apart, if your health deteriorated, if your bank account was drained, your career began to crumble, the reality is Elijah chooses a much holier idol than I typically do at least. But sometimes there's ugly beneath even the best of aspirations. And for Elijah, there is ugly leaking out all over the dirt underneath that broom bush. I'm no better than my ancestors. I've failed. I was supposed to be special. I've been zealous. Unlike all those other people, God, I've done my part. I'm the only one left. God, I'm your only hope here. If it's not going to happen the way Elijah envisions, then he assumes that revival is not going to happen at all. And it's so, the irony is so thick for me here. Elijah is so angry at Israel's idolatry that he fails to even notice what's going on in his own heart. While confronting their false gods, he's pandering to his own. But what I love, I love, I love God's response. I'll tell you this God doesn't swoop in with the typical Christian response. There's no positivism, spiritualism, moralism in his response. God doesn't look at Elijah and say, buck up, buttercup. Could be a lot worse here. He doesn't say, look at that person over there or that person over there. They've got it worse than you do. He doesn't say, at least you still have your health, Elijah. You need to pray more, Elijah. When's the last time you memorized a verse, Elijah? Verse 5, all at once, the angel of the Lord touched him and said, get up, eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals, a jar of cool water. He ate and he drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. God is a God who doesn't just draw near on the mountaintops. When things are going well and perfect in your life, I think too often we have a hard day or something. We think God doesn't really want to be around me, but maybe if I start being better, then He'll want to be around me. Here you see the angel of the Lord coming down, searching out, finding, cooking for a despairing Elijah who's just quit ministry. Who's the angel of the Lord? I'll give you a hint what's the name of our series? Meals with Jesus. A very, very strong case can be made that this is a pre incarnate Christ. If you want to make that case, look at Hagar, look at Moses in the burning bush, look at Zechariah, look at all these people who encounter the angel of the Lord and they say, I've just seen God. And they attribute the words to God. This is a pre incarnate Christ coming down. He's playing the role of personal chef for a washed up prophet. Does the humility of God just blow the doors off anybody else? If our view of God doesn't include a God who serves and runs to the brokenhearted, the screw-ups, the quitters of this world, then I'm telling you we don't know the God of the Bible. We don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Elijah. If we think God wants nothing to do with us unless we're performing on top of our game, then we don't really know God's true character we think God runs after the successful, the creme de la creme, the super-Christians, the all-stars, then we're missing it. If we think God's far off and distant and unconcerned with even our physical bodies, then we don't know the God of the Bible. The Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as ransom for many. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, or in this case, cooking and feeding. God gives Elijah a meal and tells him to rest before the journey he's sending him on. He says, you're going to need this food. You're going to need this sleep. Your physical body matters, Elijah. You need sleep. You need food. Sometimes God just gives us enough to keep going just a little bit further. What I love is how different God's response to Mount Carmel is than Elijah's. I'm so glad that God doesn't behave and act the way that we do, the way that Elijah does here. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't run. He doesn't leave his servant and quit. God doesn't forget his covenant that he's made with his people. Instead, we see him underneath that broom bush comforting Elijah, encouraging him, even teaching him. Look at verse 8. Strengthened by that food, Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Can we put that map back up? I don't think it's on there. It is. That's 200 miles. Why in the world does God need to bring Elijah 200 miles just to have a small conversation and then send him back 200 miles? He could have talked to him right there. He was cooking for him, right? Like, couldn't we have had this conversation about 400 miles ago, God? Why does he take him to Horeb? Maybe if we mention that another name for Horeb is Sinai. He takes him back to Mount Sinai. He's saying, Elijah, do you remember Sinai? Do you remember where I covenanted with my people? Do you remember what I promised to be for my people? Because I do. Let me take you back to the site of it all, where the Ten Commandments was issued, where Moses meets with me and he hides in the cleft of the rock as my glory passes by. Where I married my people. You remember that whole bit in sickness and in health, forsaking all others? That's maybe it sounded a little different in the marital vows, but God promised and pledged to be a husband to them, to be a God to Israel. Elijah, do you remember the mountain that represents me? In fact, the mountain where even when Israel was wrong, they tried me and found me guilty. And in Exodus 17, Moses takes the staff of judgment and he hits Sinai. He hits the mountain. He hits the rock in judgment. And Paul tells us later that that rock represents Christ. God's taking him back to the site of all this, the real ground zero. Elijah, I'm going to take you south. Baal is north. I think you want me to be more like Baal here. I'm going to take you the exact opposite way to teach you who I am. I'm not the God of thunder that you want with a big flash in the pan who demands people cut themselves to be seen and heard. I see you underneath the broom bush while you're sleeping and have quit. I'm not like Baal at all, Elijah. Let me remind you of who I am, Elijah. And here's what I love. God doesn't remind Elijah who Elijah is. There's no shred of that in here. He doesn't say, Elijah, you're a prophet. You made fire fall from heaven with a prayer. You made it rain when it hadn't rained in three and a half years. Elijah, you remember when you tucked in your cloak and you ran 20 miles faster than a chariot? I do. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, you're a bad man, Elijah. Just remember all these things. Not a word of that kind is uttered, and that's so countercultural for today. How, as Americans, do we try to fix and cure a case of lost confidence? You feel down? Focus on the good in your life. You feel insecure? Think about all the great attributes that you have. Think about your past conquests and accomplishments. Positive self-esteemism will cure everything. Just believe in yourself. No. That's a delicious-tasting poison. Believe in something larger than yourself. It's maybe my one problem with the identity in Christ movement, which I love, I love, I love, but it's all about my identity with Christ. God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, your eyes have been in the wrong spot. You're looking the wrong way. I'm a covenant keeping God and I will be faithful to my covenant and faithful even when my people aren't. Elijah, you're looking in the wrong place for your confidence. You're so focused on Israel. How are they going to respond? How Ahab's going to respond? How Jezebel's going to respond? Are the people going to break out in, in revival? You're looking in the wrong spot. Your eyes have been on Israel or they've been on your own navel. Woe is me, I'm just like my ancestors. I've been zealous, but it didn't matter. I'm the only one left. In fact, if you listen to Elijah's speech that he gives twice, the exact same words, it's full of, I did this, they did that. I did this, they did that. There's not a single, but you, God. God's saying, you've lost sight of me, Elijah. You're like Peter, and you're sinking because you've put your eyes off of me and onto your own feet. I wonder, though, how often we find ourselves in a similar condition. When we slip into despair, our eyes so quickly go to our circumstances, to others, to our own self and our predicament. I wonder how often our despair is actually caused because our eyes are in the wrong place. We have a God who doesn't give up. God who doesn't quit. He never runs. He never slips into despair. He has a plan. And he's faithful even when his people are faithless. In fact, I think that message can be seen even in the end of our passage today. Look at me, look with me for verse eleven, and then we'll be done. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before God. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind there. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. I've spent a lot of time in commentaries this week. Trying to wrestle with this particular verse and these passages. And quite honestly, people don't really know what to do with this. I want to give you my thoughts, though, and you guys can kind of take them or leave her. But fire... Wind, earthquake. All these represent judgment. All of these are ways that God appears in Scripture. So it's really odd that He's not in them right now. He's trying to teach Elijah something. To me, he's it's his way of saying, Elijah, you want judgment to fall. You want fire, you want Ahab and Jezebel and Israel to be judged. That's what he's doing. He's accusing Israel before God. He wants them to be judged, but God's saying, no, 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 no. Elijah, if I bring and if I come in judgment, it won't just be Ahab and Jezebel that are burned up. It'll be you as well. You're not as innocent as you think, Elijah. No one can stand before God in his judgment. Second thing that I think that I'm pretty sure is happening here, and this one's a little more speculative, feel free to push back, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about it. Enough of a caveat there. (laughs) You see, throughout the Bible, we see several themes. One of them, God starts it from the very beginning, is this theme that God's going to take the judgment for his people. God's going to take the judgment that they deserve, and he's going to own it, and he's going to have it. God's going to receive their punishment so that they can go free. That's the gospel. Pair that with the fact that throughout Scripture, Mount Sinai comes to represent God himself. That rock is Christ. When Israel judges God, they hit the mountain. And I see here in this passage, the mountain is being torn apart by the winds. The rock's being shattered. The fire is scorching it. The earthquake is splitting it apart And I see Elijah safely tucked inside. And I can't help but think that those two themes are being married right here. The mountain is taking the judgment that Israel and Elijah deserve. Guys, this is the God that we serve. This is the message and the picture that God gives over and over and over throughout Scripture. He's the God who stands in our place. He's the God who takes the judgment that we deserve. He's the God who last week we saw running off the porch, chasing after the prodigal. This week, he's the God that we saw stooping down to cook a meal for a washed up, discouraged quitter. That's the God who takes our judgment so we don't have to be perfect. The God who allows failure because he will never fail. It's the God who through just a gentle whisper recommissions this prophet go back the way you came, Elijah. I'm putting you back in service. I'm not finished with Israel and I'm not finished with you and he's not finished with us today either. Elijah, your eyes have just been in the wrong spot. You're focused on others and you're focused on yourself. Look at me. Look at the rock. Let's pray. God, like Elijah, we can all be tempted to put our eyes in the wrong place, to care too much about circumstances, to care too much about other people's opinions, to care too much about our performance. God, I just pray that you would lift our eyes to the rock that takes our place, to the God who stooped to not only cook a meal for Elijah, but stooped to bear our sin on the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Christ in such a way that it fills us with hope to face the trials of the day. Lord, be with your people. Remember that you are faithful even when we're not. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy and redeeming name. Amen.